0: So good evening everyone. Thank you for your presence. And this evening I'd like to speak about the five spiritual faculties. <clears throat> when they are when we're practicing them and realizing them and keeping an eye on them in our own practice, it becomes something that we can understand how to use them in terms of balancing our practice. So it's good to listen in a way towards uh, understanding how they work, each one of them work with one another, and how we can balance them as we go along practicing. So in the beginning, they're called the five balancing factors, but when we become more acquainted with them and use them in our practice, they become more powerful. So they become the five balancing powers in our practice. Not just factors, but powers. So these are qualities of mind that naturally arise when we are meditating. They have the potential to get stronger as we recognize them when we are meditating and they come up naturally in our practice. As you listen see if you can connect the descriptions or the words to your own actual practice so it's not theoretical but really much more experiential for you. So first want to tell you a story. Some years ago I was doing some personal practice in Burma, now known as Myanmar. And this was with one of my teachers, my main teachers in my life, uh, Sayadaw Upandita. So I was going for a check-in, or what they called an interview, and I went to give my report. So as I walked in the room, usually uh, we're walking slowly, you know, mindfully, so that the teacher can see that you're being mindful, not just in your sitting, but in your walking. And by the way, if you weren't completely mindful, after you did your bows, you had to get up and go back to the door and walk in again. So that was, there was that much attention and care with our practice. So anyway, I did get to doing my bows, and I wasn't asked to walk out of the room. So he asked a question. Usually, when he asked a question, it was something that I need to learn So he asked this particular question. What is equanimity? What is equanimity? He asked that as I was walking in and when I finished doing my bows and gave a short answer of what I knew about equanimity, he gave his own answer. And his answer was, "Um, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses in the lead is mindfulness and behind that horse that single horse in the lead there are two pairs of horses the first pair represents faith and wisdom so that's one balance faith and wisdom behind that is the second pair which represents concentration and energy so, those are both kind of opposites, also. We need to watch for their balance in our practice as well. So, we continued to say when faith and wisdom are in balance, and concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse, which is mindfulness, has little work, has little work. And the chariot is led effortlessly. And powerfully towards liberation. Now, here in our um, practice and in our lineage, liberation means freeing or liberating the heart from greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's more a purification of, le- a more a sense of letting go of purification of those qualities in the heart that cause harm to ourselves and harm to others. This is what is meant in this particular tradition. So this talk is about the five balancing faculties or five spiritual faculties. They are within ourselves, within our own potential for them to arise. It's said that they're active powers in and of themselves, individually, and which come together to be stronger with one each one becomes stronger as they're joined with each other and each one is, is held in balance with the others. So again, there's mindfulness if you can visualize this. Mindfulness as a lead horse, faith and wisdom directly behind that, and concentration directly behind that. That's a second pair of horses. As uh, Sayadawgyo Pandita would say, when they are all in balance, the lead horse or mindfulness has little work. So they're all active powers in and of themselves. They become stronger as practice gains momentum. That's why we keep mentioning continuity in our practice. With continuity, all of those powers gain momentum and they become stronger. So it's important that we keep the continuity during all the day, you know, not a, not a strong kind of effortful uh, striving, but just a regular kind of pace every day as we go through our day, being mindful with everything that we do in our sitting, in our walking, in our general activities. So each one of these has their own specific function to perform, which I'll describe that harmonizes with other faculties. And then it establishes this balance that's needed for clear comprehension. Clear comprehension means just what we're doing, clearly comprehending what's happening in the moment, and over time, clearly comprehending what we are having insights about, about and how it's leading into future, more insightful experiences that will give us a sense of more and more liberation in our practice. So it's said that they coordinate and corral the other supportive necessary faculties that are already in the mind stream. They're just waiting to be developed as they are recognized, and if we do the practice correctly, just being mindful, um, all of these factors we'll see arising in our practice. So these factors are really essential to our basic peace and happiness in the world, in our daily life, and also in developing calm and clarity, tranquility and concentration in our practice here and now. So with all of this, you know, in our daily lives and in our um, what we call intensive retreating that we do here, that carries us forward to ultimate and complete liberation from all the causes of suffering in our daily life and the, and the suffering that we see deep inside our own hearts and minds as we do the practice. So the Buddha points out that neither he nor anyone else can bestow these upon us. their potentialities within all of us that are waiting to be nurtured simply by our continuity of practice. They're fully developed through our training, through our continued training, through these practices that we have in intensive retreats, carrying through this practice in our lives, in our daily lives, and maybe in shorter retreats, in our sittings every day and every evening. And during those times, we're always nurturing their growth keeping the continuity in our lives. So we get to understand how they work as we, are, as we notice them in our moment-to-moment experience, we notice them in our lives. When we notice them, we can understand how to keep their balance. I'll just give you a little example. With a balance between concentration and energy, If we're too still and we go deep into concentration, we don't have that kind of clarity that we need to have when we bring a little more energy into it and we can be with our moment-to-moment experience. We can be, that experience can be fluid and moment-to-moment in watching and experiencing the uh, changing experience of Vipassana practice. If there's too much energy, then we get restless. And sometimes with the restlessness, we lose faith. We lose um, a sense of confidence in ourselves or in the practice. So it's really knowing how to keep them balanced with um, faith and wisdom. If we think too much about the practice and we don't um, base it on on our ability to just do and practice moment to moment by carrying out the confidence that we have in ourselves to just continue you know as we as we walk as we watch the the rise and fall of the abdomen or whatever we're noticing in the mind we just keep that up no matter what's happening then we know how to nurture our practice in that way our understanding grows in how they work. We continue to keep them in balance. We're mindfully aware of them. Eventually, they're transformed from these balancing faculties to spiritual powers, the five spiritual powers. So I want to read to you some words from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's one of our great Uh, translators of the works of the Buddha's teachings from the ancient Pali language into English. And um, I appreciate him so much because he's very clear and very direct. So here's his words about these uh, five spiritual faculties. Left to itself, without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Habitual forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are the defilements, the hindrances. Sometimes you'll hear us say kilesas. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we are not our own masters, but we are the passive pawns driven, uh, passive pawns of habit driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct and speech that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our ne- negative habit patterns, this is accomplished precisely by the development of these five spiritual faculties. So These are very, very important qualities to notice and to develop simply by the continuity of mindfulness in our practice. So I want to look at each factor one at a time briefly and see how one is naturally the cause of another to arise. And you can see how this works in our own practice, in the here and now of how you're practicing in this retreat. So first, let's look at faith. So I want to speak about faith in terms of confidence, not faith in something, some blind kind of faith in some dogma or some even some religion that we might have some blind following, but we really don't know deep underneath if it's really the cause for liberation for us. So first, faith in three major areas. Faith in the teachings, faith in the teachers, and most importantly, I think, is faith in oneself. The confidence in oneself to actually do the practice. So, Faith brings forth the energy to take the steps on our path of practice, one step at a time, like here in retreat. There is some degree when we have faith that there's confidence that our efforts will lead us in the right direction of this liberating insight and inner freedom. Uh, For myself and all my colleagues, I know we've spent Uh, we can't probably even count the steps that we've taken in this institution, you know, doing practice and just step by step, even when we thought, oh, I don't know if we can take one more step. We just took one more step with mindfulness, one more mindful appearance of whatever is arising in the mind or in the body and bringing that mindful attention there. So This is what brings forth more and more faith. If we know that we can do that, take one step after another, one breath, one hindrance after another that we can bring mindfulness to. So in that way, there's some degree of confidence that we can do this. And uh, sometimes we need a little help from our teachers, uh, people that inspire us. And so I'll I'll talk about that more when I fill out faith. It's faith that brings forth this energy to take the next step. It leads to effort and energy, which is one of the uh, qualities of these five spiritual factors. So I want to say and we all want to remind you that this is a relaxed effort. A sustainable effort. Sometimes uh, this kind of effort has been wrongly translated into striving, you know, into this incredible kind of effort that we put forth because basically we want so bad to be liberated that uh, we we can't even see what the balance needs to be for that. I want to um, quote Manindraji. This has become. Um, more familiar to a lot of us in the practice. Manindraji called it gentle persevering effort. It wasn't this kind of oomphing all the time or this kind of, you know, making strong effort and then getting tired and kind of taking having taken maybe ten steps forward on understanding more, we take a lot of steps backwards and we have to start again, over and over again. So it's this gentle, persevering effort. It's not striving for some goal that we need to attain. It's just this ability to stay steady on the path, sustainable effort. So when this energy in our practice has continuity in a relaxed, sustainable way, it brings results. So when that happens, what it brings forth is a result of mindful awareness, which is the third faculty. One thing leads to another. Faith or confidence leads to energy that we put forth. That energy with that sustainable uh, bringing mindfulness to whatever is appearing in the present moment makes that mindful awareness very, very strong, very powerful. It becomes palpable. To us, uh, sometimes the there's this awareness that oh, uh, mindfulness is there. It's really working. It looks kind of looks back on the moments, um, just moments before that time period when we're briefly reflecting and seeing oh, mindfulness is really happening. So we can see just with the energy that we put forth, sustainable continued momentum in our practice, mindfulness becomes more and more clear, more and more powerful. So even though this awareness is on changing experiences, that continuity brings about a very strong stability of mind. Uh, That stability is based on the continual arising of mindfulness in the mind. It's mindfulness in every moment and that is sustainable moment by moment by moment and then it, that mind and body can feel a deep stability when that happens. So that kind of stability of mind in the Dharma and in Vipassana is called concentration. That momentary stability of mind, of mindfulness on the moment moment-by-moment-by-moment-by-moment brings about concentration. It's called momentary concentration, but it's very, very strong and very powerful because of the continuity of that on changing objects. So in Vipassana, concentration is on changing objects, not a singular object like the breath or something we visualize, but it has to be brought to changing objects. And that's what we're doing in the practice here. And uh, tomorrow we're going to be opening the practice, not just on the, the rise and fall of the abdomen, which was fairly steady. We could develop some concentration on that. But then we're going to transfer that concentration to objects that are more changing. And we'll, we'll bring that um, understanding to you and that um, uh, guidance to you tomorrow. So this concentration, which is continuous on changing objects, gathers momentum in a gentle, persevering way. And in Vipassana practice, that steady of mind, steadiness of mind, really helps to see more clearly what's going on in underneath the concept of things. That kind of concentration firmly establishes like a laser beam of um, clarity on that moment's experience. That laser bring, bring, brings together all of the wisdom of the mind. It helps to kind of focus momentarily on one particular experience and pierces through the illusion of uh, permanence. It pierces through the illusion of self pierces through the illusion of the fact or the wrong idea that there's going to be some lasting satisfaction somewhere. So it starts to understand more and more clearly this anicca or impermanence, anatta, or the not-self nature of life, and dukkha, which is the understanding that there's nothing that's going to give lasting, uh, permanent happiness. And so, by that we start giving up our clinging to wrong ways of being and operating in life. So more about that as we go on in in the Dharma talks and practice. So this kind of concentration is like that kind of laser beam that really sees through the wrong views that we've had of life for a long, long time. And that brings about What I was just talking about is wisdom. This wisdom in Dharma practice is when these insights of anicca or impermanence, anatta or not-selfness, and dukkha, that unsatisfactory nature of life, that's when those insights begin to appear in our practice. And it's not because we read something or we hear something and we just agree with what was written, or say, oh, that that seems really cool, so, okay, I'll take that in. It's because we ourselves, in our own practice, see that deeply, moment to moment, and we start living in alignment with those understandings, those insights. So from this wisdom, that cycle deepens and continues. From that wisdom more faith arises. It gives us a confidence that kindles energy to do what needs to be done. That is a kindling for mindful awareness to arise in a sustainable way. And that mindful awareness is a kindling for concentration to arise on a moment-to-moment, changing-moment experience. And that kind of stability of mind brings about that wisdom That insights that open to profound, liberating ways of seeing life and living in alignment with those ways. So that's kind of like the long view of why we're here. It's not just, you know, um, as some people say, what are you doing just watching your belly button all the time? You know, it's a lot more than that. It's really developing that wisdom that liberates us from. The suffering that we start to see when we doing when we're doing this practice. So that's why all of these uh, uh, components coming together make the lead horse, which is mindfulness, makes it easy for mindfulness to operate. So now, just to fill out a little more about each one of those qualities, because. Um, some of us sometimes need more confidence in our practice, which is the first quality of faith. As we go along, especially in the first days, and um, even though we all have practiced many years, all of us here um, doing our best to guide you all, uh, even though that has uh, been a practice for all these years for us, and we definitely have faith in the dharma there are times when, for myself, speaking for myself, I know that I'm, I don't have the confidence sometimes. I just kind of weaken in some areas here and there. And I know I have to build confidence in oneself over and over again. So this faith is the provider of that confidence when we can bring forth or muster forth the intention to, aspire to something greater than we can imagine now. Sometimes we just kind of live in some old understandings of how we think it should be, you know, when we um, come into a retreat like this. But we come to understand that it, it does take effort. It just, it takes this deep kind of effort to believe in ourselves even, that we can just take the next step as we go along. And it plants the seeds of confidence uh, in our hearts. I like the way that's said sometimes in, in the um, translation of the Dharma that faith, the word for faith in the Dharma is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. And the translation of that is to, to place one's heart upon It's like to place one's heart upon our confidence or our ability to open to whatever we have to open to in our practice, to be able to weaken and even uproot the unwholesome habit patterns that we see that push and pull us around in our lives. One of the experiences that we have as a meditator um, more at the beginning of practice, and less and less as we go along, as we see these deep habit patterns that come up, and we need a lot of faith to be able to keep going and to keep opening and being mindful of them. So uh, when we really look at it, sometimes, as I did in the past in my in long ago, when I just started practicing, When I realized these deep habit patterns were there, I didn't want to just live with them. I wanted to know how to overcome them. And that's what brought me to the Dharma, seeing all the suffering in my own heart and wanting to be free of that suffering. So it's said that there are different kinds of faith. There's blind faith, bright faith, and verified faith which leads to unshakable faith. So blind faith, maybe you can recognize this in your own um, history of your practice. Blind faith is when we are involved in following a path of practice, basically because we're just following others and we're not checking on ourselves. Do we really believe in this? Is this really the way to the end of suffering, the way to more... A more liberated way of living our lives in the uh, famous teaching called the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha uh, said to a group of uh, the people living there who were um, who were uh, had a lot of people coming to their city or to their region, explaining different ways that one could become blissful and happy and you know, forever peaceful. And the Buddha said, uh, when they were asking the Buddha, what should we do about this? We don't know what's true. And basically the Buddha said, find out for yourselves. Try it out. If this leads to less suffering and uh, more benefit in one's life, more harmony in one's life, then follow it. But if it doesn't lead to less suffering, more it leads to more and more suffering... Then refrain from doing that. But the Buddha said, try it out for yourselves. Um, I like what, from the very beginning, my first teacher, Manindraji, from India, used to say, Ehi Pasiko, he would say to myself and others, which means, come and see for yourself. It's not about my telling you that it's so, it's about listening, hearing trying it out for ourselves, and see if this is true or not. He would say often, the Buddha found his way to peace. Now it's your turn. Now you, you have to find the way. But luckily we have some teachings that we can follow. So this is blind faith. When we're just following something blindly, not try, really trying it out, for ourselves not just doing the sitting or walking practice but really following the instructions and seeing what comes of it uh, and having patience you know to see maybe it takes time for those insights to arise so that's blind faith and bright faith <clears throat> is when we're inspired by a teaching or a person who personifies something that we see in their in their being that seems like oh I want to aspire towards that to that sense of inner peacefulness and a place of where that peacefulness leads to non-harming around oneself and it causes peace around that around other people so there can be a person it can be a place it can be a reading that you hear, or some teaching that comes from just being in nature. That inspiration leads us onward to find out for ourselves. We have some sense of peace, maybe just being in nature, or hearing birds sing, or the wind blow, or seeing a person's peaceful gait. You know, um, sometimes it's said in some stories in, in the Dharma, uh, stories about just watching the peaceful gait of one who has um, been a renunciate or, or who is a renunciate. Just watching that person can bring some sense of uh, deep understanding or deep faith in that person. I remember I was here for my first month-long retreat with Sayadaw Upandita and I had practiced with him already in Burma and um, <clears throat> when I went to see him, uh, he was over on the, uh, in the house where Joseph and Sharon live nearby. And I was walking from here to the house. And I came, I went through the, the woods, you know, the, the bit of forest between here and there. And I saw him doing walking meditation. And I just stood still and I was a little bit early so I just stood still and I I watched him just doing his walking back and forth back and forth very peaceful lifting, moving, stepping lifting, moving, stepping and it brought a lot of faith to me in my heart and it was a time of real hardship for me and um I notice the faith grow just by watching that. So it can be something as simple as that. So this bright faith is when you meet people on the path, like the person I just spoke about. For you, it may be a completely other person. It could be some an elder. It could even be a child that you see such great um, beauty in. Different kinds of beauty. For me, it was also Deepama who was a um, part of um, living in the same clan or same village as Manindraji. Um Deepama, maybe some of you have heard of Deepama, a mother, a householder. Uh, she had two children, one had passed away. And I heard of that story of Deepama, how. Um, Fervently, she practiced on the path. She had gone through so many difficult places in her life and um, she worked very, very diligently to get to a place of a lot of purity, purification in her heart, in her mind, being purified of a lot of greed and a lot of hatred. So when one was around her, I heard, one would feel that sense of that purity around one. Manindra told me many stories of her when I was with Manindraji for many years. Um, Not always, but when I visited him or when he visited us uh, where we lived in Hawaii. And um, I was so inspired that here I, I didn't have to be somebody in robes. I could be a householder and a mother of children doing what I needed to do, practice when I could go to practice, practicing uh, every day when I could at home. And it was possible, it was possible for me. So that became a deep uh, faith for me, bright faith for me, knowing about uh, Deepama. And then verified faith, uh, that very bright faith gave me the courage to go forth and to do more practice as I could. It wasn't every year; it was times when I could save up enough money to go get to a retreat and put enough um, frozen dishes in the <laughs> in the refrigerator that the children could have when I was gone, you know, and had good family to take care of the children. And so um, it wasn't like he was next door or I saw him every day. It was like went to my teachers, as we all did, when we could and got the teachings, went far away sometimes. So then when I practiced and having all that um, experience of seeing that among my teachers, among my colleagues, then uh, I continued to do the practice, even when it was hard, and verified faith came along, understanding within my own heart and mind what the Four Noble Truths were all about, taking that in deeply and letting that nourish my practice, the Eightfold Noble Path, which is part of the Four Noble Truths, really paying attention to each one of them, right speech, right action, right livelihood, Um, right view, all of the ways that it's spelled out there. And it made me have this devotion, not to a religion or even to a philosophy, but to the teachings of the Buddha, to the Dharma, a devotion to the Dharma, a devotion to my own um, inclination towards purifying my heart and mind of the Ways that I saw caused suffering in myself. Greed, hatred, delusion, suffering in others. So that verified faith and that devotion to my practice, uh, not to a being, but to my own practice. Of course, I have deep respect for the Buddha, for the Dharma, but it was devotion to my own practice that got me through a lot. So that led me to deeper and deeper faith, to unshakable faith in the Dharma. So that kind of faith, as Pema Chodron says, quoting from Pema Chodron, enables us to have confidence to be in the ocean of samsara, you know, this cycle of living this greed, hatred, and delusion way to another cycle of life, of non-greed, non-hatred, Non delusion enables us to have confidence to be in this ocean of samsara and not drowned in it, but to know how to be responsible for ourselves and be in safety as we ride the waves. So this faith out, this faith seeks a mind away from doubt. It steers the mind away from doubt, which disables destabilizes, disempowers our intention, our deep intentions for liberation or purification, any way you look at it. I remember one time I was having this doubt in my practice, doubt in myself, and it was a really, really hard time in my first uh, practice of a month's retreat. And I went far away to go to this retreat to practice. Um, Manindra advised me to practice with Upandita, so I did seek that out in, in another country. And uh, when I went there, I, I just thought, oh, I can't handle this. The dukkha that was coming up in the mind, not so much in the body, but in the mind, was coming up. I just thought, this is so overwhelming. I don't know how I'd be able to handle this. So I remembered my teachers and the persons who inspired me, and I continued onward. But when I got to my own teacher uh, in a, a, a check-in, which he called, they called interview, I was telling uh, that teacher, Upandita, and also I remember it was uh, from N- Nepal, Una Unyanaponika. I uh, greatly revere Gunayana Ponigal. So um, I started crying, and I, I kind of felt, found myself in a puddle of my own tears on the floor, which, of course, you know, they are not used to seeing that kind of thing from Americans. You know, it was like um, they didn't know what to do. I remember they were telling each other what was happening, Anapanika was translating to Upandita and Upandita was going, huh, huh? <laughs> and, and, as he usually does, and the other one talking and they just didn't know what to do with me. And so um, they just said, Unyanapanika said, Sedaoji Upandita says, when you feel this way, and I was telling them it normally comes in walking practice. He said, when you feel this way, you must bend down very slowly and mindfully pull up your socks and then mindfully stand up again and then begin again and be mindful. And I said, what? Okay, you know, and I, that's what I meant by I just followed instructions. <laughs> But when I did that, you know, it gave me a chance to begin again. I saw that they were kind of worried. They probably didn't know what to do with me. Um, so anyway, I did that. And to this day, I still do that. You know, when I'm in places where I wear socks, like in Hawaii, there's a lot of mosquito, mosquitoes, but in cold places, it's pretty cold. I can still bend down and say, okay, I'm just going to begin again. I'm just beginning again. And start over. Take the next step. So faith keeps an eye on one's highest aspirations, but knows it must take one step at a time. So this is what we need to understand in our practice, that we can't take that long step way forward. We used to, We just get, have to get used to one step at a time one step at a time, when we know maybe each of us have our aspiration in some way or another to know that we're here for liberation, we're here for purifying the mind and the heart, we're here to find some peace of, in our hearts, even if it's just a tiny moment or tiny bit, and know how to get there. So that's faith. I wanted to spend more time on that because I was going to give a talk on faith, but I changed to this talk, which included faith. It's a good one for the beginning of retreat. So that leads to the second factor, which is wiriya, or in Pali, Wiriya means effort or energy. So this is not the strenuous physical or mental exertion, which uh, Mahasi Sayadaw says, one should exert moderate effort, With too much energy, you will become overzealous and restless, and your practice will not improve as much as possible. If your practice is with too little energy, you will become lethargic. So all that wrong understanding that came from, you know, when you practice in the Mahasi way, it had to be so militant, or this I'm quoting to you from Mahasi Seidao, it has to be moderate energy. But it has to be continuously moderate, except when you're resting, of course. So it's all about continuity of awareness in a moderate way. It's simple to hear, yet it can be really challenging, like what, what kind of energy do we need? Sometimes when we feel sluggish, we need to step up our energy. Or when there's too much energy, we need to ratchet it down. So all of us need to know what the middle path is for ourselves in any given moment. So that's about energy and the energy factor. So I wanted to really point out this very a factor. I quoted, um, see, I quoted Mahasi Sayadaw. So here's another quote, really important, from Utejaniya that many of you are... Some of you have practiced with Utejjiniya. We've practiced with Utejjiniya also. Wiriya or this spiritual quality of energy, is uh, the quality of patience and perseverance together. So I just wanted to point that out. Perseverance has to do with continuity, and so does patience. They say that patience is a stepping stone's Uh, They're the stepping stones to Nibbana or to the unconditioned or to that very deep, unconditional peace that we can experience in the Dharma. So we understand uh, viriya as persistence, not exertion or force, says Uteshaniya. Please don't wear out your mind or body by striving forcefully when you meditate. Understanding cannot develop when your mind or body is tired through striving. So that's faith and energy or effort. And now the third spiritual faculty is mindful awareness. And uh, Debbie spoke beautifully about that last night, so I just want to cover a few points about it. Every day here, we're learning about it experientially. All of the uh, all of the, uh, guidance that we're giving in the morning is in vipassana mindfulness uh, practice. So in Pali, mindfulness uh, is the word sati, s a t i, which means to remember. So I want to, I want to fill out all of that uh, that comes all of that understanding that comes from these Pali words. Sati actually means to remember, to observe, to remember, to observe, not to get lost in what's happening, uh, but to actually know or remember or be mindful that it's happening. As um, Deb was saying last night, it's not just to feel the experience, but it's also to know that one is feeling that, that there is that, that experience that is being felt. So feeling it and to know it, to know that's what's happening. So in, pa- in Pali, that's, uh, sati means to observe the present moment, not the past, not remembering what went on and we want it to happen or don't want it to happen again, but it's remembering the, the present moment, not remembering what we think about the future or what we're planning about the future, But we want to be in this very present moment where a lot can be learned. There would be more wisdom in the world, and there is in in a lot of indigenous tribes in this world, where being present with oneself is major. We can learn a lot from that, and I think our society is going way far away from that. We need to come back to more of a balance of being with ourselves knowing what's happening in this mind-body continuum that we're so deflected against sometimes. So why is it so important to be mindful of the present moment? Because it's only in the present moment that that wisdom reveals itself. It's only in that present moment that that experiential wisdom reveals itself. It doesn't reveal itself by something, wisdom you heard about or read about in the past or you think about that's going to happen in the future. It's only in the present moment. We're looking for it in all the wrong places. We've got all these books and all these Dharma talks and that's wonderful. But don't stop there. We have to do more about being in this present moment. Because the present moment reflects the truth of how it is. It reflects the truth in the clearest, most empirical way. And that cannot be out of reading something or just hearing something and agreeing with it or thinking that it's really great. It's just really by doing this practice, all the great masters of the world went through some kind of practice to become that great master. So in the Abhidhamma, in Buddhist psychology, Abhidhamma's Buddhist psychology, it gives a detailed description of the component parts of the, of the mind and how it works, that particular component part of the mind works. One component part of the mind is sati, is mindfulness itself. There are many parts to this mind, and mindfulness is only one of them. So I want to, in short, give you some of the details that the Abhidhamma says about this particular component part. The function of mindfulness is to remember to recognize the present moment's experience. That is the function of mindfulness, to remember to recognize a present moment's experience. The proximate cause for mindfulness to arise is strong perception of the four foundations of mindfulness. Strong perception of the four foundations of mindfulness. That means uh, what can help us is noting this silent mental notation, as um, Deb was so beautifully describing last night, labeling the experience. So it's not just experiencing the experience and sometimes just getting lost in it, but knowing what that experience is, then we can have a a short label to kind of got it, you know, like, okay, hearing, that's what's happening. Sometimes it happens that way, you know, where we say, yes, knowing that that's what's happening. It's not only experiencing it, but as the Buddha says, also knowing that that's happening. Sometimes that labeling can give that strong perception. Sometimes we don't need it because it's already there. But when we need it, it's really helpful. So the proximate cause for mindfulness to arise is strong perception can be um, supported by labeling when it's needed. Sometimes, as someone today pointed out in one of the small groups, is that it really comes to kind of bring this labeling really comes to help come back to that present moment when one is lost in like thinking or lost in like whatever's happening in the body, pain in the body. It comes to know, oh, this is thinking, and it comes, it sees that moment just passing away. So that moment is known in its entirety, not just getting lost in the content, but just seeing the ephemeral nature of it, which happens because it's clear, very clear perception. So the manifestation after function, proximate cause, the manifestation is connecting with the object, really observing it, even momentarily in that moment. It It has that uh, feeling of really being with it, not just from far away. It's really connecting closely to the experience. Why does it need to do that? Because the deep experiences that come to be known in our practice, the wisdom experiences of impermanence, the not-self nature, and the dukkha nature of everything, need to be known in the objects as well as they're known in awareness. So can't just be known in awareness. Awareness has to connect with the objects and those experiences need to be known in all of the foundations, which include the objects of our awareness. So the characteristic of this um, mindfulness is not floating away. It means it doesn't stay on the surface of things, just like floating along and it being so pleasant that we just think, well, this is it. You know, just going to keep floating along until these insights come. But it won't come that way. You know, you really have to get close to experience more, to this moment-to-moment experience. Um, it It's sometimes described, I think the description was not in the Abhidhamma, but this description was more in the um, Path of Purification, the the, um, the Sudhimagga. And it's where the mindfulness can seem like a cork just floating on the water. And it just see, sees things surface-wise. This is kind of general mindfulness in the day, just seeing the surface of things. But really deep mindfulness that's assisted By all of these other qualities of mind, it's like a pebble that you put on the surface of a pond and it sinks deeply into the various levels of uh, the mind and of reality. And it sees life in all those levels. It sees understanding in all those levels of life, which is not kind of like just on the surface of things. It really sees with depth. So that's sati, that is real mindfulness. It's not just floating along in mindfulness or awareness. So then we have concentration, which I explained uh, previously, so just briefly about that. In this practice of vipassana, the concentration is really stability of mind. It's momentary concentration on changing objects. What um, remains also changing, but uh, always becoming present, always passing away also, but coming up over and over again, is mindfulness, sati, every moment. With every object that appears, mindfulness arises and they pass away. Another moment arises, mindfulness arises with that passing away. Another moment, mindfulness passes away. So mindfulness becomes consistent with the continuity. And that continuity of mindfulness over and over again brings that stability of mind. It feels like deep concentration, but it's on changing objects, not on simple calm or tranquility or one object. It's much deeper than that. That's what happens in Vipassana practice, different than concentration practice. So when we have faith, energy, mindfulness, and concentration, that's when the fifth faculty or power of wisdom arises. And that's when these five faculties become of five wisdom powers. So what we learn about our practice then is we have two different kinds of wisdom that come up in our practice and in our deepening understanding. With a clear view of life, with life not um, blurred blurred by or weighted down by greed, hatred and delusion, the mind sees more and more clearly. The mind sees more clearly with a lot of caring, a lot of unconditional friendliness, a lot of generosity, sharing and giving, a lot of wisdom, clarity, instead of delusion and ignorance. And there are basic kinds of wisdom that we understand and we actually live out in our lives. The first kind of wisdom is on the relative level and there's another kind of wisdom on the absolute level. So first the kind of re- wisdom on the relative level of life where we need a, a certain kind of wisdom to lead our daily lives in harmony with all of life and in harmony with our own highest aspiration in life. So. Our values of non-harming become so clear. Our inner values of non-harming through our, bespe- through our speech and behavior become so clear to us that we have to be really living in harmony with that, those virtuous qualities that we admire in others and we would want for ourselves too. And we see that there's no other way for us. We have to be much more careful about our speech and our behavior. So there is a gradual weakening of that habitual of those habitual forces of, that cause harm through being respectful of the precepts, the ones that we take, the five precepts every day. We remind ourselves to become more and more careful, and in that carefulness, we see our heart and minds more in harmony with our highest values and in harmony with the world around us. So we live that way in life and in living that way our pr- our practice goes more deeply. They say with beings who have that kind of sila or that uh, harmony or that non-harming attitude within, it's easier for them to see more deeply into the nature of reality and be liberated from that understanding, that deep understanding. So this living in harmony, this sila, is no small thing that we undertake every day. As I go on in my own life, I realize how important that is more and more and more. So then we're able to understand this absolute or relative or ultimate level of life that wisdom that we see when we have that pure purity of speech, purity of behavior, we're able to see more clearly in our own hearts and minds. There's this direct experience and understanding of the impermanence of everything, the not-self nature of everything, and also the dukkha nature of all of life. We start to understand those three um, things that we hear about in the Dharma all the time, anicca, dukkha, anatta, and we start to understand it experientially. And in, in time, we start to live in alignment with those understandings. And deeper and deeper understandings come. We don't hold tightly as much to how we think it should be or how we want it to be. We live in alignment with good, our good speech, behavior, and with others. And we live in happiness and peace around that. But a deeper peace comes, a deeper peace of feeling that purity within our own hearts and minds and being able to experience the peace that's beyond all words, beyond all ways that anyone could ever describe So that's where this practice is leading to. Understanding how to live on the relative level of life while we're holding the ultimate level as well, that deep understanding of life. So this happens in a very gradual way, sometimes without our even having words for it. We simply keep practicing and live into that truth. And we have really deep moments of peace and harmony within our own hearts and minds. We become more caring and wise on the relative level. We find ourselves clinging less and less. And, you know, find ways to live in life in harmony without holding on. doesn't mean that we lose our happiness or our joy. It just means we can't cling to it. You know, we enjoy it while it's there. We let it go. When it goes, it's so simple, but sometimes we make it too hard to understand. So, living in harmony with life on the relative level, on the absolute level, those two things come together. And that's the trajectory of our practice. I love this saying by Padma Sambhava, great Tibetan master Though my view is as vast as the sky, My attention to the laws of cause and effect are as fine as barley flour. That means, you know, we have this great understanding of this view of life, which is great that way and depthful also. But we also pay close attention to the laws of cause and effect and do not cause harm. So I'd like to... um, I had a lot of quotes from uh, men. I'd like to have a quote from one of my teachers, uh, Ayakema. Kema. She was a mother who became a nun later on in her life from Germany. And I had the great privilege of um, having her as a teacher for a short time. So this is about the five spiritual faculties. Since all of us have these faculties within There is every reason to cultivate them. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties, capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So let's sit for a moment few moments and let all the words just dissolve. Thank you for your kind attention. Now we have about 25 minutes for some walking practice and back here in the hall for chanting. I'll be doing some chanting with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.